Today's scripture comes from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 25. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of psyllium, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man, but they kept asking him, then how were your, your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes. Then I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened, he said. He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He, he answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I was blind, but now I see. I imagine that though not physically blind, that you probably have more than one story from your own life, where you lacked clarity, where you lacked vision, where maybe you lacked hope even, where you couldn't see where God was or where God was leading. But then an encounter with God, an encounter with the good news of the gospel came along and it gave you the sight and the clarity that you needed to be able to understand that God was present and at work in and through your very life. Now, some of you might uh, be well um, conditioned to telling your story and others might not feel so confident being able to articulate how God is at work and how God has been at work, giving you sight and giving you clarity. And so my prayer today is that as we recount the story of the blind man who regained sight in scripture, and as we recount the testimony of others, that you either begin or that you further develop 
the story that God is writing in and through your life. That you are able today to think about specific moments along your journey, those pivotal points where God came along and washed some dirt out of your eyes and gave you the vision that you needed to both understand God and to understand who you were in God's sight. Now, Martin Niemöller was a prominent and influential pastor and theologian in Germany, both before and during the Nazis' rise to power. Prior to becoming a pastor, however, and in line with his love and his devotion to his country, Niemöller served as a submarine officer in the German Imperial Navy during World War I. And then after World War I, uh, Niemöller went into seminary. He came out of seminary. He was a Lutheran pastor, but he remained a conservative nationalist. In fact, Niemöller even casted a ballot for the Nazi party in both the 1924 and 1933. He believed, as many people, many Christians even, believed at that time, that somehow through this Nazi movement, there was going to be a Christian revival and a national rebirth. I think it's safe to say, history tells us, that Niemöller was very likely blind. But the thing is, is that Niemöller was influential. He was well-liked, and he led a church of prominent people in Germany. And at first, Niemöller saw absolutely no discrepancies between what the Nazis stood for and what Jesus Christ stood for, and what Jesus demanded of him and of Christians and of the church. In fact, Niemöller even championed the Nazi party's zest. And it wasn't the persecution of the communists that bothered him. It wasn't the persecution of the trade unionists. It wasn't the persecution of the Jews that bothered Pastor Martin Niemöller. In fact, it wasn't until Niemöller began to see what the Nazi party was attempting to do with the church, namely take it over with its own leadership and use it as a vehicle for its own political ideals. It wasn't until his own power in the church uh, began um, to bump up against what the Nazi party was doing that Niemöller began to see things differently. He began to get clarity, and he began quickly then to move in another direction. Niemöller eventually took command of the Protestant church's opposition to Hitler's church policies, and he remained the opposition's undisputed leader until he was arrested in 1937. He spent nearly a decade in prisons and in concentration camps, he stayed there and he survived until the liberation. And then Niemöller went on to become an example of resistance and rebirth, an example of standing firm in the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and an example, hopefully, for all of us to learn from. Many of us today know him for his famous words in his confession speech. First, they came for the communists but I did not speak out because I was not communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, but I didn't speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, but I didn't speak out because I was not a Jew. 
And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. We know him today because of his heroism in making an about face and standing firm in the truth of Christ and standing in opposition to the Nazi movement. That's what we know him for. Yet after the war, Niemöller and his wife um, eventually returned to visit the site of the Dachau concentration camp where he himself was held between 1941 and 1945. And as he visited, he came upon a plaque that was affixed to a tree. And there was a simple wording on the plaque. And it said, Here in the years 1933 to 1945, 238,756 people were cremated. Martin said that upon reading that inscription, a cold shudder ran down his spine. But it wasn't the number of people who were murdered that got to him. Rather, he said, it was the dates, 1933 to 1945. He told people that he obviously had an alibi for the years 1937 to 1945. He was being held in a concentration camp. But he said that God wasn't asking him where he had been between 1937 and 1945. But rather, God was asking him, where was he? between 1933 and 1945. And Martin Niemöller said, for those earlier years, he had no answer. Thus became the gospel according to the story that God was writing through the life of Reverend Martin Niemöller. A story about a blind man who regained sight after an encounter with Christ. A man who spent the rest of his life until the age of 92, telling the story of a God who gave sight to a blind man and a man who used his very life from the time he regained that sight until the the day he took his last breath, telling the world and showing the world how to admit to his past sins and his mistakes and how to live his life in a way that proclaims the truth and the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and how to live his life as a model of that goodness and that grace and that truth in the face of whatever the world throws, no matter what it costs him. Though he was blind, now he could see. Which brings us to our gospel lesson for today. John chapter 9, a passage in which Jesus challenges his disciples, challenges the Jews, and challenges the Pharisees on their theological assumptions. A passage where Jesus is trying to point out their own blindness. In John 9, we meet a man who was born blind. And it's important to note that he was born blind because Jewish thinking um, and Jewish theology would link sin and illness. And it's not just his own sin. It could have been his parents' sin that caused him to be blind. It's why we hear that question asked. So if a man was born blind, clearly Jewish thought would have said that someone sinned, that this was a deserved consequence of someone going against God's will. But when the disciples ask Jesus that very question, who sinned, this man or his parents, Jesus presents for them a theological argument 
challenging their Jewish beliefs. Jesus says that no, in fact, neither this man nor his parents caused his blindness. But the point, the hope, the good news, Jesus says, is that through his recovery of sight, that God's work would be revealed in him. We're told in verse 6 that Jesus spits on the ground and begins kneading the mud and the saliva mix to create this muddy clay that then he smears in the face of the blind man. Now that probably seems bizarre to us. Can you imagine going to your eye doctor and instead of them putting those dilation drops in your eyes that they walk over to a potted plant and they spit in it and then they just pull out some of that soil and just throw it on your face? It seems bizarre to us at first. But what, what is really happening in this passage is Jesus is challenging the theological assumptions of the time. You see, the Greco-Roman world believed in the, in the healing power of clay. More importantly, though, kneading, like Jesus was doing with the clay and the spit, kneading was a very specific category of activity that was prohibited to be done on the Sabbath day. And that place where Jesus tells the blind man to go and wash off the mud from his face, Salome, that is significant as well. It is linked to the Jewish feast of the tabernacle. Tabernacle means God's dwelling place, God with us. And so what Jesus is essentially telling them, that he's tabernacling with them, that he is present with them, that God, through Jesus, in that very moment, is present and dwelling among them. And as soon as the blind man washes the mud from his eyes in the water that symbolizes God's dwelling in God's presence, the man could then see. Now, all of that rich theology aside, I love that Jesus uses mud in this story. You know, mud is dirty, it's gritty, it's down low to the ground, and it is messy. And that all sounds a whole lot like the human condition to me. My personal experience tells me this, and my observations tell me this. And listening, I love to listen to the stories that you all share with me. Through listening to the stories that you share with me, it is very often through those dirty and those gritty, those muddy places, those low-to-the-ground places, it is very often in those places where we have been beat up or knocked down or maybe just those places where we have been knocked, we've been knocked down to our knees by having all of our previous assumptions challenged. Assumptions about what is right and what is wrong even. Like in the case of Martin Niemöller, it is in those muddy and humbling places that God is often able to break through, to speak to us, to wash us off with his grace and his presence and to help us begin to see clearly, to see who he is, to see what he desires, to see who he sees in each and every one of us, and to see the places that he calls us to. It is often in those dirty and muddy places where we begin to get that clarity. You see, our gospel passage for today is about Pharisees and Jews focusing on all of the wrong things. They were focused on this man's sin. Or was it his parents' sin? 
They were focused on Jesus' sin, on working on the Sabbath day. They were focused on matters of the law. All the while, Jesus was focused on the good news of the gospel. Jesus was focused on his grace and his presence. Jesus was focused on his goodness and his glory and the way that he can reveal himself to all of us, to wash us off, to cleanse us, to give us sight. The Pharisees, the Jews, the disciples, the man's parents, they were all focused on the wrong things. Jesus shows us in this passage that he is the good news. He shows us that he is, uh, that he is willing and able to clear us of our blindness, to heal us of our blindness. He shows us, he demonstrates to us through his own actions in this passage that he is greater than the law, that he is the fulfillment of the law, and that the law has absolutely no power as long as he is present. He shows us that in John chapter 9. The Pharisees, the Jews, even the blind man's own parents, they didn't see it. They weren't willing to see it. Heck, even his own parents, the blind man's parents, distance themselves from their child in this passage. We're told that they were, quote, scared of being put out of the synagogue. When the Jews began interrogating the man's parents, they want to know, how did he regain his sight? Was he really blind since birth? There had to have been an explanation. So they ask his parents and the blind man's parents, they begin backpedaling. And they say, mm, well, you know, really? I think you should just ask our son. He's an adult after all. He can speak for himself. They were scared. It's amazing, isn't it? Think about that. Professing Jesus can very well cost religious folks, followers of Moses, followers of the law, followers of legalism, upstanding citizens. Professing Jesus can cost good folks their religion. It can cost them their status. It can cost them their job. It can cost them their place. It can and will and should cost all of us our old identity, an identity that we are willing to lay down when we are baptized in Christ. Professing Jesus cost Martin Niemöller nearly everything. I think we can learn two main things from this passage in John 9. And the first thing is that Pharisees will interrogate the Jesus in and through us. The law, and by that I mean the law of Moses, is always intimidated by the gospel. It always will be intimidated by the gospel because the gospel will always be greater. And the gospel renders the old law obsolete. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the only vehicle. Jesus, as the fulfillment of the law, is the only vehicle by which we are given true sight and true life. Pharisees will come to us, and they will interrogate the Jesus in and through us when we profess Jesus, when we follow him, when we are true to the gospel at work in and through our lives. 
The second thing I think John 9 teaches us is that blind folks who regain their sight through Christ will bear witness. They have to. They have regained their sight. We have regained our sight because of Christ. We were blind. We lacked vision. We lacked hope. We lacked clarity. We lacked purpose. We lacked understanding. And then all of the sudden, we didn't. And we know why we didn't. We know um, through whom made us have sight. And it's personal and it's powerful. And blind men and women who have regained their sight will share their story. We have to. We have no other choice. It fills us up with this desire to share it, to tell other people about where our hope comes from. Why, in the face of everything else we might be going through, we know that there is something beyond what our mere human eyes can see. The Pharisees in our passage today, they are focused still to the very end of our passage today in verses 24 and 25, still focused on the wrong things. And they're questioning the blind man, the former blind man at this point, on whether or not Jesus is a sinner. They need to have an answer. They need to have an answer that is acceptable to them under the law. And the blind man says, man, I don't know and I don't care. But what I do know is that all of my life I have been blind. And now I see. He knew the good news and he was going to share it. Even if it cost him his relationship with his family, with the synagogue, with the religious leaders. He had to share the good news of the gospel, which was greater and will always be greater. And so we too are called to name those areas in our life where we have been blind and hopeless and beaten down and dirty, those areas where we couldn't see, but God came along and washed us with his grace and his mercy and his presence and gave us sight. We are called to name those muddy areas. You know, what are those areas in your life where you were humbled and brought low? What are those areas where God has washed you off and given you assurance of his love and assurance of your salvation in him? We're called to tell the story of those areas. I believe in the concept of being wounded healers. And a wounded healer is just that. It's people who have been hurt, all of us. We've all been hurt. We have all, in some way, been slighted, been neglected, been abandoned, been rejected, been sinned against. And God, as he heals those wounds in us, the deep wounds and the superficial ones, I believe God wants to use us to use you as wounded healers. We just recently kicked off Hope Night here. And Hope Night is full of a bunch of care groups and classes where people, brave disciples, are willing to use their own hurts in order to connect with others that are in the trenches, that are going through some very painful times, and to essentially be wounded healers. They are using the story of God at work in them to connect and to bring hope and healing to the lives of others. I've heard it said that the only gospel that some people will ever see or hear or read 
is the witness of the gospel that comes alive through the story of your life. But you have to be willing to tell it in some way. All of the glory, of course, and all of the work belongs to God. But as God reveals his goodness and his truth to us, God doesn't want us to keep that to ourselves. He wants to use the story of his glory in our lives to reach and to touch others. Our testimony, your testimony, it's personal and it's powerful. And even if you think you don't have the words, I will pray with you today and every day that God gives you, if not the words, the means and the vehicle to connect with others and to share that story. I will pray that God shows you, shows us all how to use the story he is writing in our own lives to encourage others, to build up others, to give hope to someone, to be merciful, and to always be willing to point people in the direction of Jesus the God among us who broke the Sabbath day law in order to cleanse someone of their blindness and give us sight. That you are willing to use your story to point people toward Jesus over and above the law of Moses, over and above legalism, over and above church polity or whatever else we might put out there, but that we are willing and bold enough to point people to Jesus and to reassure everyone in our, our life of his presence among us. What are those areas in your life where you have been blind, but now you see? How is God manifest in your own life? And if you had to give an account for your hope and for your faith, would you be able to do so? Would you be able to tell the story it's not a one-size-fits-all. Sometimes we're called to share our story through words. Sometimes we're called to sit and listen to another person as they share their story. And we begin to build trust and relationships and connections. Sometimes we're able to use pictures to tell the story. Sometimes we're able to use art to tell the story. Song tells the story. Service and mission, tell the story of God at work among us, a God who doesn't abandon us. Sometimes we're able to clearly just witness to another person and tell them about Christ. Sometimes we're called to love our neighbors in a state that we're in right now of heightened fear and heightened anxiety where people might be inclined to hole up and to close themselves off. Perhaps God is calling us to be a good neighbor. Of course we need to be wise. Of course we need to be safe. But we're never not called to be neighbors. So maybe during this time we're simply called to check on our elderly neighbors, to check on those among us with compromised immune systems, to run errands for those who it might not be wise to be out in public. It's never a one-size-fits-all solution. But the good news of the gospel is always meant to be shared. It's never meant to be kept to ourself. And so the question I will leave you with today is this. Are you willing, like the blind man, like Martin Niemöller, like every average Joe and Jane disciple 
who might not have some big miraculous story like Martin Niemöller? Are you willing to use the story that God has given you, the life that God has given you, and the connections that God has given you? Are you willing to use them to share the good news of Jesus Christ and the good news of God at work in and through you? Please join me in prayer. Holy and loving God, God, we know that you sent us Christ to reassure us and to remind us, God, that we are not alone. You put on flesh. You moved into our neighborhood. You came into our darkness and our brokenness and our fear and our anxiety. And you appeared among us in the flesh, reminding us of your goodness and your grace and your presence. You reminded us that it is through you and through you alone that we are saved, that we are made right, that we are made whole. And before you left us, you gave us very simple but powerful commands and commissions. You told us to tell the world about you. You told us to go out and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And you told us to make disciples. And you told us, God, that the world will know that we are your disciples by our love for one another. So help us, Lord, to be disciples who love well and disciples who are bold enough to tell the story that you are writing and continue to write through our life. It's in Christ's name that we pray. And all of God's children said, amen.